Jonathan um, considers a short prayer. See, they laugh at you. They don't laugh at me. I don't know. I, you're you're more you're funnier than I am. <laughs> uh, I've resorted to a stool today uh, because I would rather not pass out up here. Um, but but thank you for being here. Uh, it, this reminds me of my um, of the reception after my wedding. Uh, the air went out in the reception hall. Uh, and I only know that because people told me afterwards I didn't even re- I didn't even realize it. Uh, and the reason I didn't realize it is because I was married. And um, and I was focused on one thing, and that was that woman, and not whether or not the air was working or whether the food was there or whatever. And I would just say to you this morning, what a great opportunity uh, to test um, our our ability to, to suffer through something as, as silly as being without air for an hour and a half to come and to worship our Savior. Um, so. I'm I'm glad so I'm glad for that. Although inside it's I'm dying. Please come back. You know you want to, the church planner wants to say please come back. We usually do have air. Um, but but what a great opportunity for us to be together and do that. We are in the middle of a series. We've entitled Grace Stories, which is a look at some of the parables in Jesus's ministry where he was trying to teach the way of God and the way of God's kingdom to um, the people that he came in contact with as he journeyed throughout. Um, Israel about 2,000 years ago. And then we've been looking at these parables of Jesus on the heels of a long series in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And the reason we've called this series Grace Stories is because in them Jesus is correct, correcting our assumptions and he's unveiling the reality of the of radical grace. And that's why we wanted to do this study after we did the study on the book of Galatians because Paul's theology of grace uh, versus what we might call Religion or moralism is really rooted in the teachings of Jesus, and that's what we're seeing here. Uh, in Galatians, the Galatian church had fallen into the error of a moralistic system of trying to earn their salvation through obedience to the law. They believed they were accepted by God because they were good and because they, you know, there was moral achievement. Um, but Paul is writing Galatians, trying to bring the believers in that church back to the truth of the reality of the gospel that we are saved by grace and not by moral achievement, that we are saved because of what God did in Jesus to rescue us and not by what we do to save ourselves. And, and the same, there, this, this is the same lesson Jesus has been trying to teach. It's the same truth. And in each of these parables we've looked at, it's a, the parables occasioned by an obvious loss of grace as the operating principle of God's kingdom. And Jesus tells the parable to correct the view. So in the prodigal son, uh, the, the parable of the prodigal son is occasioned by the religious people getting upset because Jesus is choosing to eat with tax collectors and sinners, the bad people, rather than the eating with the good people. And they don't understand. Why would he choose to have a, you know, to be around people who are considered moral outcasts rather than wanting to be with fine upstanding people like us? And so he tells the parable uh, to kind of correct their understanding of, of who really is good and who really is not. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the, or excuse me, last week we looked at the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and, it, and the parable is occasioned by by certain people that Jesus comes across that are confident in themselves that they are righteous, and they're constantly looking down on everybody else. And so he tells the parable to kind of correct their understanding of of who really should be seen as better than than you know, are these people better than these people? What are the the standard or the code by which we decide who's ahead of who and who's on top and who's down at the bottom and all these kinds of things. And Jesus is just saying, no, 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 that's not the way it works. And he tells the parable to correct this assumption. And then this morning we're going to see, as we come to this very, very famous parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus tells this parable um, to correct 
what is true of the lawyer that he comes in contact with and the, and the question and the assumption behind the question that the man asks. So if you have your Bible and you'd like to turn to Luke chapter 10, we're going to begin in verse 25. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Don't worry. We've printed it for you in the worship folder. It'll also be on the screen uh, behind us. This famous parable of the of the Good Samaritan. But we're going to go back and we're going to pick up the conversation that occurs between Jesus and this lawyer prior to the parable so that we can get the context. Okay, so let's read together. Beginning in verse 25. Luke reports, and behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul with all of your strength and with all of your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the man, the lawyer, desiring, desiring, and here's the phrase, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii. And gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is God's word. Now, what we're learning from Jesus is rejecting grace and replacing it with religion or moralism or whatever you might try to call it, trying to earn your salvation through moral achievement, it makes an absolute mess of things. It's, it's not what the human heart was made for. It destroys self-image. That's what we learned in the prodigal son. Both the boys, um, both the boys had rejected their father's love, and it just destroyed their self-image. It destroys prayer. And that's what we saw last week with the tax collector and the Pharisee. And the, tax, the Pharisee just had just terrible prayer, you know, that the guy offered that was really just self-advertisement. But today, today, as we come to this passage, what we're going to see, we're going to see how this, this rejecting grace, replacing it with moralism or religion or trying to earn your salvation through moral achievement, we're going to see how it absolutely destroys love. How it completely renders you incapable of being what, a scripture, what scripture calls a neighbor. So three things this morning, and I'm going to try to be quick, too. It'll be interesting to see whether, you know, Jonathan's idea of a short prayer, or my idea of a short sermon it should be fascinating this morning. But we're going to try to get through it fast. OK, three things. Number one, the enemy of a neighbor love. Number two, the example of neighbor love. And three, the energy for neighbor love. And then just a couple of applications. So those are the three things you'll see them as the three points in your outline. First, the enemy of neighbor love. The example of neighbor love, number two. And number three, the energy for neighbor love. Where do we get the energy to do this? Okay, so let's look at those three things together from this text. And I'm, I'm working it, man. I got, I, got the, I got the rag for the sweat on the forehead, and there's alliteration in the outline this morning. We're, we're, we're on it today. Okay, so go with me through these three things, beginning just here. The enemy, the enemy of neighbor love. Let's look at the lawyer for just a minute in this conversation he has with Jesus. You see, the parable is prompted by a conversation that Jesus is having with a lawyer. He's, now, don't cringe. 
Uh, my dad's a lawyer, so I'm not going to bash the lawyers this morning. This guy is not really a lawyer in the way that we understand it. He's a law expert. He was a guy that was conversant in the moral law, and it was his job to help people understand what God had said through the law. And he wants to know. This guy comes, and he's testing Jesus, and he wants to know how Jesus is going to answer this question. And he asks, he says, you know, what do I do? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? He wants to know what Jesus, Jesus believes you have to do in order to go to heaven. Now, note, there's a huge assumption behind the question, isn't there? What's the assumption? That you have to do something to go to heaven. Now, Jesus takes him to the law. It's beautiful. It's brilliant what Jesus does. And he says that if you keep it perfectly, then you'll live. And that's true. Now, look, look there in verse 28. He says, do this and you will live. But stop for just one minute and think about this with me. How does the lawyer summarize the law? Look there in verse 27. How does he summarize it? What does he say? What is Jesus says? How, how do you read the law? And he says, Here's it, here it is. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So, no big deal. Here's the standard. Here's what you've got to pull off. Passionately love God. Every second, with every heartbeat, every thought, and every act of your will, and pursue the good of your neighbor with the same passion and intensity that you pursue your own. No big deal. Now, I have a feeling, it's just a feeling because it's not here, I have a feeling that the lawyer knew as soon as it came out of his mouth that he was in way over his head. And here's one of the clues. He asks a question. Well, who is my neighbor? I mean, do you understand what he's, do you see what he's doing here? Okay, that's quite a tall order, right? So first order of business, I need to know who I can exclude. Okay, I need to narrow this thing down as much as I possibly can and regain some control of my ability to get this thing done. So he asks, who is my neighbor? And we're told, if you look there, we're told he did this because he wanted to justify himself. And that's the key. That's the key. This guy's life strategy is to figure out a way to be good enough that he can bring the verdict, this verdict of righteous, this verdict, I'm right with God, I'm okay, you know, that he can bring it on his own life. He wants a rule that he has a shot at keeping, and he assumes that neighbor can be narrowed to a small enough group that he can really pull it off. And that's what I want you to see about this way of life, that moralism, moralism is an easy way out because it seeks to create rules that are attainable but it destroys love because the goal is always love, not following the rules. And sometimes those two things come in conflict with one another. So Jesus tells the story of a priest and a Levite who come across a wounded man in the road and choose not to help. In fact, they intentionally cross to the other side of the road to avoid him. Now, why would they do that? So we've got to open up this parable just a little bit, okay? And so look with me down here in the parable, and you're going to see some of the, we're going to, kind of go through some of the detail of what's going on. The road Jesus is describing stretches 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it was notoriously dangerous. It was full of robbers. The priests uh, who served in the temple in Jerusalem, a lot of them would have lived in the city of Jericho. So probably what's happening is these guys are traveling the road. They're going off duty, and they're heading home. And then all of a sudden on their way home, they come across this man lying in the road, and this presented a huge problem for them. Because here's what we know from the scripture. We know that if they would have chosen to stop and help the man, they most likely would have become what the scripture calls ceremonially unclean. They would have contracted uncleanness in the process. And that was a really big deal. Because when they got home to Jericho, here's what they would have had to do. They would have had to have remained outside the city for up to a week. 
while they went through the purification rites that were both time-consuming and very, very expensive. Very practical. They've been on duty probably for six to eight weeks in the temple. When they got home, they would have had to stay outside the city so they wouldn't have gotten to see their family for another seven days. And so one commentator says, wives, servants, and colleagues would have applauded their neglect of the wounded man. Now, there was a huge cost. There was a huge inconvenience. And so the priest and the Levite passed by on the other side of the road. And what Jesus is saying is, is it's not so much that these guys are to blame as it is that the system that they're a part of is to blame. They're prisoners to their own theological legal system. To act compassionately here would have rendered them unrighteous, and that means that the system is corrupt. Because if you have to break the rules in order to love, then break them because they're bad rules. Does that make sense? I mean, that's what Jesus is saying. And so the lesson, the lesson that you and I can learn from what's going on in this parable And this is just the way it kind of boiled down for me is we can get so busy trying to be good that we forget to do good. And all of it is rooted in a heart that's not been transformed by the gospel. It's just religion. It's just rules. And and this creates what what we're learning in this parable is it creates it creates a hard heartedness because it fuels self-interest that all of my obedience is about building my spiritual resume. It's about me. And so I'm doing it for me. And I want you to look there. Think about the question the lawyer asks. The lawyer, when he asks this question, he's not motivated by love. He's not, it's not love. He's not getting after love. He's not trying to, he doesn't want clarity so he can figure out how to love. He's not motivated by love when he asks the question. He wants to know what the rule is so he could follow it, so he could feel affirmed and self-satisfied for following it. That's what Jesus is exposing in the priest and the Levite in the story. In Israel, these were the guys who had been given the responsibility to care for the poor. It was their job. But when they saw this wounded man, they couldn't intervene because their hearts hadn't been melted by love. They were full of self-interest and selfish motivations. They were busy being good that they couldn't do good. They were, they were thinking about themselves and the conflict this presented to them rather than thinking about the man lying half dead in the road. It was just too dangerous. It was too costly. And what their actions reveal is that all of their obedience was just outward moral conformity and not motivated by a deep heart transformation. Their hearts hadn't been changed. They were full of self-love and not neighbor love. And so even in the doing good, they, could, they were full of self-love and not neighbor love. This was, this was painfully brought home to me recently. Uh, I've told you about the story of my friend John who passed away recently, and I'm close to a lot of the members of his family. And one of the cool things about being a pastor is it's like an all-excess pass to a lot of different things. Uh, and so when we went over to the funeral at church, um, I, there was a, there, I parked the car. I dropped Ashley off to get us a seat because we knew it was going to be full. And I, I pulled over, and I, I came to the double doors that said, you know, family entrance only. But, of course, there was a, you know, a, a lady there you know, that was guarding the door, but I hired her, and so she knew me, so she let me in. And I thought, this is great. I'll get to go see the family for a few minutes and and just, you know, make sure they know I'm here because I'm a pastor and very important and I want them to know that I love them and I came to see them and all these kinds of things. And so I went downstairs and I and, you know, and I right this is right before the funeral starts. And I, you know, I start kind of making my way in and I saw his wife and I saw his son. And I start shaking their hands, just trying to comfort them. And, and I realized, you know, they're really ignoring me. That's, you know, not very nice. And I thought, wait a minute, there's a funeral. It's about to happen in three minutes and I'm bothering them. That's not very nice. So what am I doing here? And I realized uh, what motivated me was not so much 
uh, that I wanted them, you know that I, that I wanted them to feel loved and cared for is that I wanted myself to feel loved and cared for. I wanted to feel important. And I thought, gosh, that's gross. I mean, that that really that really is gross. You know, I thought you're ignoring me, but then I thought, you know, I did that for me, and not for them. And that's part of what's being exposed here is that all kinds of good things that we do. Uh, unless our hearts have been radically changed by the gospel, if we look deep enough inside of ourselves, we're going to find a lot of self-love operating rather than neighbor love. And the priest and the Levite failed to love in this passage because of their need for affirmation and approval and to intervene, and it would have cost them too much. So Jesus is telling the parable uh, to teach something very important to you and I, and that's we need to come to the second point. We need to see if the the enemy of neighbor love is this self-interest or or self-love, then what does then what does neighbor love look like? What's the example? And Jesus is telling this parable for this reason. And he wants us to see that we can't, that there's something in us that wants to do this, but he doesn't allow us to do it, that we can't separate our love for God for love for our neighbor, that they're the same thing. And that's the accusation in Hosea 6. If you look there in your worship folder at the call to worship, God is coming against Israel through the prophets, and he's saying to them, I desire, in verse 6, steadfast love, not sacrifice, Knowledge of God, not burnt offering. The context of that verse is God is rebuking Israel. He's saying true worship is not religious observance, going to church and all these things. It's practicing mercy and hospitality and generosity towards others in deep relationships. It's, it's not, you know, religious rituals, not burnt offerings and this sort of thing. It's a relationship with God. It's the knowledge of God. And love for God is always expressed in love for your neighbor. Always. Our love for God. And our being loved by God is always fleshed out in the context of, our, of, of a love towards our neighbors. Derek Webb, who used to be with Cayman's Call, if you're familiar with that Christian band, but he's on his own now some, and he wrote a shirt, a shirt, he wrote a song, it's called T-Shirts, and the, sub, the subtitle of the shirt is What We Should Be Known For. And here's, here's the lyrics of the song. He says, he's talking about Christians, they know us by the T-Shirts that we wear. They know us by the way we point and stare at anyone whose sin looks worse than ours, who cannot hide the scars of the curse that we all bear. They know us by our picket lines and signs. They know us by the pride we hide behind, like anyone on earth is living right. And isn't that why Jesus died and not to make us think we're right? And then the chorus says, love, love, love is what we should be known for the how and it's the why we live and breathe and we die he goes on to say they'll know us by the reasons they know us by the reasons we divide and how we can't seem to unify because we've got to sing songs a certain style or we'll walk right down that aisle and just leave them all behind they'll know us by the t-shirts that we wear they know us by the way we point and stare telling them their sins are worse than ours thinking we can hide behind our scars beneath these t-shirts that we wear Love is what we should be known for. And in Jesus' parable, the Samaritan models this for us. This road, as I've said, was notorious. There was a good chance, as he comes across this man, that that is a trap, that the robbers are near. But you see, he doesn't worry with any of that. He comes to the man, and he bandages his wounds, and he carries him to an inn, and he pays for his stay. And it's a picture of neighbor love. To look at people in our lives, especially in their distress, to sacrificially and generously come to their aid in a concrete way, to put aside our selfish personal agendas and to inconvenience ourselves for the sake of pursuing the good of others. You see, neighbor love 
neighbor love, as Jesus describes it here, requires me to take my time, my talent, and my treasures and to connect them to the needs of others instead of just submitting themselves to my own selfish agenda. I want to say that sentence again because I thought, man, <laughs> we're full. You know, pastors are full of conceit too. You know, you come across this and you're like, that's brilliant. <laughs> you know? Neighbor love requires me to take my time, my talent, my treasures, and to connect them to the needs of others instead of just submitting them to my own selfish agenda. I mean, what, God, what, what, what Jesus is calling for here is what Hosea calls for in Hosea 6.6 6, when he says, I desire steadfast love. And that's a beautiful word. And it's, a, it's a Greek word um, that's the word hesed. And it means, it means stubborn love. It means we're to love one another stubbornly, to push past every excuse and every inconvenience and every offense and every resistance. It, it means... To, to interact with somebody in such a way that you say, I'm going to put my love on you and nothing you can do can cause me to remove it. To love you in that way. To love you with that much force. To push past every resistance and every obstacle that stands in the way and say, I'm going to put my love on you as my neighbor, as my friend, and there's nothing you can do that's going to cause me to take it off. And that's really what Jesus is calling us to in his characterization of this Samaritan and this in this story. But here's the kicker, okay? Here's the kicker, and here's where it really starts to get ugly. It's this, is that Jesus is also using this parable to teach us that our neighbor, that neighbor love doesn't extend only to those that you're close to, but even to your most hated enemies. Now, this is what brilliant, this is what is brilliant about what Jesus is doing. The lawyer wants to define neighbor, very, very, you know, rigidly define neighbor in the hopes that of excluding as many people from the category as he possibly can. And Jesus broadens the definition to include everyone in distress, even enemies. I mean, who's my neighbor? I mean, Jesus' answer is anyone who is in need, even your enemies. I mean, this is a Samaritan caring for a Jew, and that would have been, that's the implication. Jews and Samaritans hated one another. I mean, a modern equivalent would be, you know, Jews and Palestinians today. I mean, this is the kind of radical love Jesus calls his followers to, to love your enemies from Luke 6, and to do good to those who hate you and to bless those who persecute you and pray for those who abuse you, to give to everyone who begs from you and to lend expecting nothing in return and to wish others would do to you as you would do to them. It's radical neighbor love he's calling us to. And what's really neat about the language here is the language is really specific. And if you look there in verse 34, I want you to look carefully there. And Jesus tells about the Samaritan and he says to him, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring out oil and wine. Now, in the Bennett household, we're very, we're very, you know, we're into the whole new, you know, oils. Like Ashley, like, puts oils. I mean, Matt, my brother-in-law thinks she's poisoning our children, but we use, like, you know, the eucalyptus oil and the, what else, spearmint oil, and I don't know what all kinds of things we do. But in this day and in time, oil and wine were not standard first aid remedies. You know, that, that's not what was going on here. So, why, you know, why use them? What's going on here? And there's something very, very specific that Jesus is doing in the telling of the story. Oil and wine, the pouring out of oil and wine, they are sac- these things were sacrificial elements in the temple worship. The word pour, especially, is a, is a specific word that comes from the language of temple worship. And so Jesus' point is this. These guys have just come from the temple where they've been pouring out oil and wine on the altar before God, and they've come on the road, and they've missed the opportunity to do the same thing for this man. And Jesus' point is this. This is true worship. It's the Samaritan pouring out oil and wine on the wounds of this man, not the religious professionals who pour out 
oil and wine in the temple who is offering a true acceptable sacrifice to God. I mean, the priest and the Levite, think about it. They're, they're probably coming home from pouring, pouring out oil and wine in the temple, and yet there's a complete disconnect between all of their ceremonies and all of their religion and a life of compassion. And it's something the prophets rail against over and over and over again in the scriptures. God has lots to say about this. For example, in Amos 5, 21 through 24, this is a frightening passage where the prophet comes to the people and he says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Listen to this. Take away from me the noise of your songs. The melody of your harps, I will not listen. He says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an overflowing stream. In Isaiah chapter 1, God says, Who has required this of you, your trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings and incense that is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assemblies. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourself. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. And then he says, here's the corrective. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. And plead the widow's case. See, God has very strong things to say about living with the disconnect between the worship of God and the care of the poor and the needy and, and the love of our neighbor as we walk through life as disciples of Jesus. And I just want to say to you, this is absolutely crucial to our mission in our city that we figure out how to become people who can show the kind of neighbor love Jesus is calling us to here. And Aristides, who was, a, who was kind of a reporter in ancient Rome, he was a non-Christian. He saw the way the early Christians loved one another and took care of their poor uh, in Rome, and he defended them to the Roman emperor. And here was the report that he gave to the Roman emperor after watching the Christians and the way they worked out neighbor love and their common life together. He said, this is a new people, and there's something divine in the midst of them. So, the example of neighbor love, and the, or the enemy of neighbor love and the example of neighbor love, but if this is what he's calling us to, then let's just take the last couple minutes we have together and just ask, then how do we get this done? How, do, how, how if, if self-interest is the enemy, then how does the self-interest get rooted out of our hearts? See, what, what we're learning here is it's possible for religion to fuel self-interest instead of destroying it. And so we have to ask the question, then how does that self-interest get rooted out so we can show neighbor love? And Jesus requires a love that cannot be required. It cannot, it cannot be a response to a requirement. It has to be a response to free grace. You have to be crushed by the sight of the love that God asks of you and then humbled by the mercy he offers you. And what does all that mean? And so let me ask this question as we come to a close this morning. Then what is, just think about this parable with me for a minute. And let me ask this. Why does Jesus cast the Samaritan as the hero? You see, we miss it entirely if we think that Jesus told this story to give the man who asked the question and us an example of what a life of radical generosity looks like. Like, you know, it's not that Jesus, Jesus is just giving us an example. You know, in other words, here's how you should be, you know, go get busy. But most people, most people who come to this parable, they think something like this. They think, okay, the priest and the Levite, they're the bad guys. I shouldn't be like them. And the, and the good Samaritan, you know, he's the good guy. Okay, I really need to try to, I'm supposed to be like him. And so, you know, I, I got to kind of figure out how to not be like them, but be like him. And I don't want to be harsh this morning, but I do want to say to you, if you read the parable that way, then watch your heart for what's being revealed. 
Because what's being revealed in the heart of the lawyer, Jesus doesn't mean for us to read the parable that way. And here's how I know. Here's how I know. By casting the Samaritan as the hero, Jesus intentionally crafts the story so that the man who asked the question doesn't see himself as the knight in shining armor riding in for the rescue. A first century Jew would have never been able to identify himself with a Samaritan. It would have just been too much. Jesus doesn't want this lawyer to identify and to see himself as playing the role of the good Samaritan. He wants the lawyer to see himself as the wounded man lying naked and bloody in the road. And that's the key. To understanding the teaching of this parable. See, the lawyer wanted to justify himself. And that means he saw himself as capable and strong and good and moral and wise and all of these things. And his life commitment was to save himself by being good enough by following the rules, by attaining salvation through moral achievement. What must I do, he says, to inherit eternal life? And that kind of living fuels pride and self-interest, and it destroys love. See, if I believe I'm accepted and loved by God because of my performance, then I become obsessed with my performance. I become obsessed with me. And Jesus wants this guy to see the exact opposite. He wants him to see he's morally bankrupt. That his obedience and his hard work have gotten him nowhere. That he's just as helpless as this dying man lying in a ditch. And if that somebody doesn't come to the rescue, he's dead. And you see, that's what we've got to come to believe. If we're ever going to be people who love the way Jesus is commanding us to love here, we have to see ourselves as beaten and broken by sin, desperate and without hope unless somebody comes to our rescue. Jesus, Jesus wants you, when you read this parable, he wants you to despair over yourself. And then to marvel to see that God himself has come to rescue us. You see, that's what destroys self-interest. To come to understand that we're weak, that we failed, that we're broken beyond repair, and we have no hope of ever doing good enough to save ourselves. And then to see that, that there's a good Samaritan who has come to our rescue despite our hatred of him and our rebellion and our sin. You see, Jesus has always been associated with the good Samaritan. He came into our world. He walked down our road, and when he came upon us in our distress, he had compassion on us. And when he saw us, he knew that to stop wouldn't just risk his life. He knew it would cost him his life, and he did it. And his body was torn in two so that we might be healed. He was struck down by the Father's wrath so that we might be raised up to walk in God's favor and blessing. Jesus took our place on the road, bloody and beaten by the Roman soldiers. He became sin and was nailed to a cross to suffer and die in our place. Not only that, he offers us life and health and power through the Spirit who comes into our hearts to destroy pride and self-interest and to teach us to love as he loved. And he does this because he loves us, not because we deserve it. He does this because of grace, not because we've performed well and followed the rules. And you see, this is, this is the point this morning. If you see him doing that for you, because he loves you, not because you're somehow worthy, because you're unworthy, and yet he loves you. You're the one lying naked and beaten in the road without any hope except that someone would come to your rescue. If you could see yourself there and then see Jesus coming all the way from heaven to earth to die on a cross for you and to raise and to be raised from the dead to bring you new life. If you could see him, you won't ask, who's my neighbor? There'll be so much inside of you that is just bursting to come out. You'll finally be free of pride and self-interest so that you can go and do exactly how Jesus ends this parable, so that you can finally, that we can finally be people free to pride and self-interest, that we really can go and do likewise. So let's pray that together this morning, that Jesus would come and do that work in us. Um, 
Jesus, you are a great Savior. You're a Savior of sinners. And I confess to you that I have long read this story and seen myself as the hero riding in to save the day. And you mean for me to see myself as the one lying in the ditch that needs to be rescued. Forgive me of my pride. Forgive me my my heart attitude, my, my commitment to bringing salvation to myself through all of my good work, through all of the good things, through all of the, the, the kind acts that I do for other people, to think that that somehow merits me um, your favor and uh, your blessing and your love. And that just isn't the truth, that, that we are, all of us, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, that we all are marked by moral failure, that we are bankrupt, that we are... Um, none is good, none is righteous, no, not one, that our lie, that our tongues are full of deceit and lying, uh, that our hands are swift to shed blood. The Scripture says we are, we are all broken and ravaged by sin, and we have no hope except that you would come. And yet, Jesus, what we learn in the Scripture is that you came all the way from heaven to earth uh, to do the work that we could not do for ourselves, and you have come to rescue us when we have no other hope. And so I pray that this morning you would help us see your heart for us, that it would melt our pride and our self-interest, that it would change our hearts at the deepest level, that we could be people who who go and do likewise, and that it would lead to great glory for you, we pray in Jesus' name. Your faith is in Jesus, no matter how beaten or broken you may feel, no matter how ravaged by sin, no matter how... Um, you, no matter how badly uh, you may be splayed out on the road, uh, not even able to lift your head, uh, he is a savior who comes in search of sinners. Uh, and if your faith is in Jesus, then you no longer have to, to wonder about the, the father's heart and disposition towards you because you have his favor. And that's the promise of the benediction. So as you go and do likewise, know that you go not hoping you can do enough that you will gain God's favor. No, you go having his favor. And so now you can go not full of self-interest, but full of neighborly love instead. And so receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go and